And welcome back to another episode of Ladies First. I am Corey here with Elizabeth. Hello. And we are on part two of our LGBT and AIDS awareness slash history month. Uh, so we're basically when we rise uh, the history of the queer rights movement part two. Um, in case you didn't catch it, part one, we'll go ahead and link that um, in our article, so you can go ahead and catch that if you haven't already and you're interested. Uh, part one, we were really kind of talking about uh, the queer rights movement, like our history, especially in and around Hollywood and leading up to the AIDS epidemic. So, um, you know, today's the super fun topic. Um, we're going to be talking about the history of the AIDS epidemic and really delving into that. Um, I'm going to just say ahead of time, if I sound kind of clinical and detached when I'm reading through this, it's not that I um, don't care. It's just, it's very heavy and it's what I need to do to kind of get through it without breaking down. So if I sound a little robotic, I'm just trying to get this out so Elizabeth doesn't have to, you know console me on air <laughs> <laughs> yes um we left off right when the AIDS epidemic had started to hit and I really kind of want to delve through um kind of the main point of what happened when it hit up until probably around the mid 90s um, almost to the year 2000. Um, I want to say thank you to Avert. Um, they were one of the first uh, activist organizations. Uh, they started in 1986, and they have a tremendous history record. I got a lot of my history from there. So um, I want to thank them ahead of time just because it made uh, researching quite a bit easier, and I know they've done a lot of good work um, since then. And they still do a lot of good work. But let's go ahead. Um, we'll go ahead and start on this. I'm going to start in 1981. Because this is when it really kind of hit uh, in the United States. Now, HIV, as we kind of know it, uh, they think it started around 1920. But the epidemic that really kind of caught the world's attention wasn't until the 1980s. And... Like, there were some sporadic cases documented prior to, like, 1970. But what we know of AIDS and the epidemic and how we came to have all of our history, that started uh, by 1980. So, 1981 is where we kind of start in the United States. And this starts, uh, it was five young men. They're previously just really healthy gay men, and this was actually in Los Angeles, and they were um, diagnosed with a really rare lung infection, a really rare type of pneumonia called pneumocystis carini pneumonia, or PCP. It's essentially something nobody under the age of 90 has any business getting. Exactly. And at the same time, there are reports of men in New York and in California, like San Francisco, and they were being diagnosed with a unusually aggressive type of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. And when you see AIDS with the pictures of victims who have like those purple to brown dots all over their skin, 
That's mm-hmm. what Kaposi sarcoma is. Yes. And it's a really aggressive type of uh, skin cancer. <clears throat> so, and this is why when you read some of the history, when it's first mentioned, it's called the gay cancer. That's why. Because so many uh, gay men, if they weren't showing PCP, they were showing Kaposi sarcoma. For a while, it was also called GRIDS. Uh, yes. That actually didn't happen until 1982. Um, okay. Sorry, I jumped ahead a little. That's next yeah. year. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but by December of 1981, um, we started seeing cases of PCP being reported in people who injected drugs. So um, this started to become like the gay man slash drug user's disease, unfortunately, but this is just the first communities where we started to see this. So by the end of the year, there were 270 reported cases of this severe immune deficiency among gay men, and 121 of them had died. Yeah. Um, Flash forward to 1982, this is actually where we start seeing the first uh, terminology of gay-related immune deficiency or GRID, as it started to be uh, referred to, and that came out of Southern California. And it was, you know, just these cases of gay men who kept coming down with this and started suggesting that the cause of this was sexually transmitted. So, unfortunately, mm-hmm. now we're slapped with GRID. Because um, they had because the major- vast majority of the cases were homosexual men or men who had had sex with other men. Right. So... At in the, time, the, in they, the U.S. They did, in the U.S. No, yeah. I should say in the U.S. So at the time, when they made this assumption, there was at least some basis on it. They were, But it's the fact that people were dying so quickly, they were just literally taking shots in the dark because they were having such a hard time researching it. Right. And mind you, this has been a year since this started to pop up. So in December, uh, pardon me, September, the CDC started using the term AIDS. And if you don't know, that's Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And they started using that for the first time in September 1982. And now we're starting to see AIDS uh, reports also from, like, Europe or European countries. Uh, We started seeing them, different manifestations of it in countries like Uganda. Uh, It was called this new fatal wasting disease. They called it SLIM at the time. And if you see those photos (laughs) of... Um, AIDS I'm sorry, victims. I laughed. Yeah, if you see the photos of AIDS victims, um, like David Kirby, mm-hmm. um, when they're super wasted away, that's a manifestation. That's pretty much what slim is, when they just become skeletal. Yeah. So, now we start having some specific organizations being set up. And this is by the end of um, 1982. Shocker, they come out of, like, San Francisco and New York and L.A., where mm-hmm. the highest, you know... Um, rate of infection. Right, rate, rate of infection are. So, we kind of fast forward a little bit. Uh, January 1983, we start realizing uh, women can get this, too, because... As far as in the U.S., we were only really hearing about cases of homosexual men. Well, now we started seeing that female partners of men who had the disease could catch it too. So they realized, oh, this can be passed on not just through homosexual uh, sexual inter- uh, relations, but also through heterosexual sexual interrelations. It was also when, because of the intravenous drug user thing, that they started cluing in to, okay, we think it might be a bloodborne pathogen. Exactly. Um, 
in, by May 1983, uh, doctors in France, they reported, and this is kind of the first big breakthrough we had, of this retrovirus called lympha, pardon my butchering of this, lymphadenopathy-associated virus, or LAV. And they it did pretty this, well there, actually. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a scientist. Um, <laughs> and this is really when we finally maybe made just a little bit of incremental progress on this. And they thought this might have been the cause. Um, fast forward to June, a month later, we start getting the first reports of AIDS in children. So now we're realizing that this can be passed from mother to child. Mm-hmm. The problem was the first few cases, people assumed all of a sudden you could get AIDS through casual contact. Yeah. So even though a- by September 1983, the CDC had identified all major routes of transmission, and they explicitly ruled out transmission by casual contact or food or water, air, or surfaces, it's already stuck. And now we have people discriminating against HIV victims because they're convinced just by touching them or breathing their same air, they're going to get it too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... By the end of the year, the amount of AIDS cases in the USA rose to over 3,000 and had claimed the lives of over 1,200 people. Uh, Fast forward to April 1984. This is when the National Cancer Institute announced uh, that they definitively found the cause of AIDS, and it was a retrovirus. They called it HTLV. And then they announced that LAV, the one that I am not going to try and pronounce again, and HTLV3, they were identical and likely the cause. So this let them create a blood test. So, mind you, we we started having this epidemic in 1981. It took them three years to even develop a blood test to screen for this virus. So that's three years of people not quite knowing where it's coming from, not knowing how it's being passed, not knowing who has what, because this doesn't always manifest immediately. It should be noted that 1984 was also the year they finally closed the bathhouses. So they had been, this had still been going on for multiple years, infecting more and more people. Exactly. Actually in October of that year, that's when the bathhouses and, um, you know, other clubs in cities like San Francisco or New York. Specifically specifically sex clubs. Yes. There's no point in dancing around it. That's what we mean is that um, this is the yeah. point at which they, they decided that this was too much of a public health risk and they had to stop doing this. Yeah. So October um, 1984, they shut those down in San Francisco. Next, By the next year, New York and Los Angeles had done the same. But unfortunately, you know, by the end of 1984, there were over 70 nearly 7,700 cases of AIDS in the U.S., and now we have over 36, pardon me, over 3,600 deaths. And, you know, compared this to all of Europe, to their 762 cases. It's still a lot of people. It's a lot of people to up and die in two months. That's just really, like, the, the thing that made it so frightening is how quickly it killed you. Yeah, and the variety once of ways it, it manifested. Once it manifested, it worked very quickly. 
Um, and the other point I wanted to get out, um, especially once 1985, March 1985, that's when we had um, ELISA. And it was the first commercial blood test that could detect antibodies of that virus. And this is especially mm-hmm. when the blood banks began to screen the USA blood, uh, the United States blood supply. By this point, um, I do want to insert the gay community had been launching their own kind of last-ditch Hail Mary clinical trials. And some of the deaths associated around this time are because the cure that they were trying was far more lethal than the virus. Mm. And, I mean, this it's simply from sheer desperation. You know you're dying. This may cure you or kill you, but if you don't take it, you know you're definitely going to die. So it's I mean, not all that uncommon with with diseases like this or with instances like this in which we end up hitting very, very big dead ends in the process of research. It's just part part of the process. Well, and also, especially in the United States, we didn't devote nearly the resources to research early on when we should have. Yeah, I'm seeing in 1985, 70 million, which that's even not not that much money, even for 1985. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, it's shameful. I, I don't have anything else to say. It's shameful. Yes. Um, but also, 1985 is when we had the uh, Ryan White. Um, he was a teenager from Indiana, and he got AIDS through contaminated blood products. And this is why the blood banks began to screen the blood supply, because we had people being contaminated who were um, either in accidents or hemophiliacs. Um, I remember when I was a kid, this was most of what they talked about was via blood transfusion. Yes, but he was actually banned from his school. Mm-hmm. Because, unfortunately, like we talked about back during the contact assumption before they cleared it up, that latched onto the public consciousness, and they're still thinking anybody who has HIV is contagious. So you even have kids being banned from their schools. There was a lot of think of the children pearl clutching going on with this particular issue. Yeah. Um, the same a small side note, if you're interested, um, for Ryan White, there actually is a pretty nice Oprah special that was done on him a few years later. It might be worth looking into. He was actually a very, very well-spoken young man. Yeah, I think he had his own foundation set up before he died. He did. He did, yes. Um, you know, October 2nd, 1985, Rock Hudson, we talked about him our last episode. He died from AIDS, and he was the first high-profile fatality. Yeah, um, and the month before was the first time that uh, Ronald Reagan mentioned AIDS, AIDS publicly. Yeah. And it was because of Rock Hudson, who was his friend. And he publicly came out and, you know, said, I have AIDS. And... I mean, this was really the first time it started entering the public consciousness. And, you know, when he died, he left uh, $250,000. Yes. And And Elizabeth Taylor was the first national chairman of the American Foundation for AIDS Research. Yeah, or AMFAR. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by the end of the year, our toll keeps going up. Um, We're at 20,000 cases being reported in the entire world. I mean... Compared to the population, it doesn't sound like a lot, but 20,000 cases of this highly deadly disease. In five years? 
I mean, that's a lot. It's an epidemic. Yeah. So, I mean, we cut to 1986, and a lot of this is when we start seeing like the groups like Avert being founded. We start seeing the gay community community mobilizing and starting to realize like nobody's going to help us. We've got to fight for ourselves. Yeah. Because even the Rock Hudson revelation was not really bringing the support where they needed it. I mean, it brought support to medical research, but the problem was is nobody was helping people on the streets, so to speak. Right. And again, you know, if you're in the LGBT community at this time, you're you're practically mud to the rest of the straight world, so they have even less of an impetus to help you. Yeah, so it's amazing how much the attitude changed in just five years because of this one thing. Yeah. Because people were so afraid of the virus. Um, and I mean, we this is when we start getting, you know, our, our activist groups, like I said, avert, or we had um, ACT UP, Action mm-hmm. AIDS, the Audre Lorde Project. Now, a quick note about ACT UP. Uh, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC, the news anchor, mm-hmm. she actually was in ACT UP San Francisco before she went to school in Oxford. And she took what she learned from ACT UP San Francisco and in the UK helped found the AIDS Treatment Project and also the National AIDS uh, Manual. And that was like one of the first consumer-oriented research information compendiums for people who are HIV positive. That was easily acceptable. (coughs) Pardon me. I I didn't know about Rachel Maddow. I actually learned something new in the process of this, from drafting this podcast. Yeah, um, I didn't know that either. I I actually heard her say that on a podcast. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah. So, anyways, by the end of 1986, 85 countries have reported, and this is just the ones that are reported. Mm-hmm. 38,401 cases of AIDS to the World Health Organization. This was also 1986 was the year that the AIDS quilt was started, right? I believe so. Yeah, Lee Jones. Yes, Cleve Jones. Um, yes. uh, 31,741 of those cases were from the Americas. Yeah. The next uh, closest country, was, continent really, was Europe, and that was 3,800 some cases. So, again, this is exponentially spreading in the United States. So... Here we start getting into even more shameful behavior from the U.S. In 1987, WHO launched the Global Program on AIDS to start raising awareness and, you know, start trying to get this treated and under control. Well, the U.S. decided to ban entry for anybody in the world who was HIV positive. I, mean, I, I want to make sure that sinks in. The United States decided to ban entry into the country for any reason for a person who was HIV positive. That same year, we got the first semi-effective antiretroviral drug, AZT. We also received a FDA-approved blood, uh, blood test kit, and it was 
I think, a lot more accurate than the one that had come out in 1984 and 85. And by July of that year, we realized that HIV could be passed from mother to child for breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. By the end of 1987, and I, I want this number to sink in, at the end of 1986, we were at 38,000. At the end of 1987, we were at 71,751 cases. When I say exponential increase in deaths, we're sort of speaking literally. They sort of double every year. 47,000 cases were from the United States. And the World Health Organization, and these are just reported, and the World Health Organization by now is estimating that 5 to 10 million people were living with HIV worldwide. And we're still talking at about like a 75 to 100% mortality rate at this point. Mm-hmm. So in 1988, um, WHO, the World Health Organization, declared December 1st as the first World AIDS Day. So we're trying to, we're finally getting some mobilization done. The groups like ACT UP and AVERT, I mean, we're finally making some noise. Uh, you may see, um, some of you who are older may remember, there were very loud demonstrations, especially up in New York by the ACT UP groups, where they would <laughs> um, hang effigies outside of CDC centers because they were so desperate to have somebody like any of the news groups reporting on what was happening to them there's that very very famous photograph of um oh i'm blanking on his name but you will know the activist with the the the, the jacket that says when i die don't don't bother with the funeral throw my body on the cdc steps yeah i know who you're talking about i can't think of his name but i know you're who you're talking about those are the type of protests we were talking about here yeah, that was part of the act up protests yeah um just because they're sitting here and they're dying and they're living in a country that doesn't give a damn. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to sweep it back under the rug. And I, I can't emphasize this enough. If you look at the cases reported from the U.S. compared to cases reported from anywhere else in the world, we are exponentially higher. Exponentially higher. And there was no reason for that. So, yeah, um, I'm trying to keep myself from getting overly worked up, so I apologize. Why don't we just keep moving yeah, forward? At the end the of 1988, yeah, at the end of 1988, uh, Ryan White actually, um, the Ryan White Care Act had started to be mobilized. So uh, the young man we talked about earlier who was uh, banned from school, this is what his legacy was. He actually got the Ryan White Care Act passed. Um, 19- the end of the 90s saw a lot of activism for, for children with AIDS and HIV. Yes. And by the end of 1989, um, the USA AIDS count had reached 100,000. So in For the reference, 90s, this is the year I was born. Yeah. So, uh, uh, 1990, Ryan White died of an AIDS-related illness at 18. 
June 6th, remember I told you about that immigration visitation policy which stopped HIV people from entering the country? Mm-hmm. Well, they tried to hold an international AIDS conference in San Francisco, so guess how that went? <laughs> oh, we did not think this through. No. But by July, the U.S. did enact the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, which prohibited discrimination against those with disabilities, and they specifically included people living with HIV. Mm-hmm. And by October, the FDA had approved the use of AZT to start helping treat children with AIDS. Yes. Which is a humongous breakthrough, by the way. I know I haven't, I haven't talked about it too much, but, like, this was an utterly revolutionary that people were going from dying in a couple of months to living several years with relatively high quality of life. Well, and the other part of that, we had AT, uh, AZT, and then what really turned the game around was the protease inhibitors. Yes. Um, and those came out in 1995-96 when they were finally approved, and that's... You know, within two years, the annual deaths from AIDS in the United States fell from over 50,000. Again, annual deaths at this point were 50,000. And when the protease inhibitors were finally released, again, 15 years later, the death toll dropped to 18,000. And it's been... You know, prior to this, it had been increasing around 20% or more each year. Yeah. Within two years, it dropped to 18,000. Yeah, it's difficult to overstate how big of a, de- how big of a deal this was. Um, you know, I know I kind of skipped over 91, 92, 93, 94. A lot of this is just, again, like we had Freddie Mercury in 91. He came out, said he had AIDS. He died the very next day. Um, 1994, the FDA kind of approved that oral HIV test. It was the one that, you know, you didn't have to take blood to test for that. But 95-96 is when we had the combination of AZT and then when the protease inhibitors came out where we finally started turning a corner and getting a handle on this. Um, At least This was after... This was after the 1994 AIDS became the leasing, leading cause of, de- cause of death for Americans ages 25 to 44. So in a year, we flipped that around. Yeah, I mean, by the end of 1996, the estimated number of people living with HIV in the entire world was 23 million. And the number of people surviving and going on to live reasonably, reasonably uh, fulfilling lives increased dramatically. So, you can see in here, though, the amount of people we lost was growing every year, and many of them were from the LGBT community. Now, you know, I've had people like, well, what were they doing at this time? And obviously, we talked about ACT UP and AVERT, and, you know, we were fighting for our lives. Um, I want to talk really quick about ball culture, that sprung up in urban areas because there's yes, we a t- lot we, we touched on it last last time yeah we talked about the west coast last time this time we're going to talk more about the east coast um 
ball culture or ballroom culture, this kind of really sprang up. And I want to talk about this specifically because a lot of the history we mention with the AIDS epidemic, it focuses on white historical figures. And ball mm-hmm. culture is really about uh, people of color making their own spaces. Um, you know, drag balls had existed since like the 1920s, but these yes. were primarily for white men. Um, black queens would sometimes be allowed to participate. They never won. <laughs> and finally, you had two queens, uh, Crystal, and I'm really sorry if I mispronounce her last name, La Bella, and her friend Lottie. They began their own drag ball, and they called it House of La Bella. And this is what started the entire ballroom scene out of New York. And, you know, this spread to other urban cities. Like, we've got, we had Detroit, Chicago, um, Los Angeles. And these became refuges uh, for people of color, especially in the LGBT community, who no longer had a family or were disconnected from their birth family. They found new families and, you know, a new acceptance and validation within ballroom culture. And this was kind of a haven while it was also this place to just shout out, I'm here, this is me, and be accepted for it. So, you know, especially during the AIDS epidemic, where white LGBT community members were fighting and screaming and being arrested just to be seen, I mean, you can imagine how much visibility there were for people of color. Yes. Um, Which is part of why Rent was so revolutionary, but we'll get to that in a minute. We will. I promise we're going to get to Rent, Elizabeth. Um, I'm so excited. um, But especially with ballroom culture, in 1989, um, the House of Latex was created. And this was the community doing work to bridge this gap with ballroom culture and HIV prevention. And, I mean, they literally call it the house of latex. Presumably it has to do with condoms, not with the other thing, which I'm sure is the first place your mind went. um, Anyways, so, you know, they did their own work, and they supported each other, and they were oftentimes the only home a lot of... um, LGBT members who were trans or queer or whatever, but they were POC, and this was the only home they had. Yes. Um, There are two documentaries about this. One's called Paris is Burning. It came out in 1990, and that was directed by Jenny Livingston. And then... Generally considered to be one of the best documentaries ever made. It's definitely worth watching. Um, I'll link to both of these. And then the second one actually came out last year. It's called Kiki... And it's directed by Sarah Giordano, and it's considered the unofficial sequel to Paris is Burning, and it kind of shows where ballroom culture has come now. hmm So, okay, Elizabeth, I promised you could talk about Rent. Okay, we're going to talk about Rent. All right, so Rent actually just had um, a Broadway rev- revival and a new tour, and I don't know if it's still going on. Um, although I will say, if you have never had the opportunity to see the stage version... 
the movie is honestly just as good, just in a different way. That the the stage version is a is a true rock opera in the sense that the entire thing is sung, and then the the film is a little bit more like a traditional musical where it uses a mix of both talking and songs. Um, okay, so uh, Rent. Uh, Rent was originally it was started workshopping in 1993. Uh, it's a uh, loosely based on uh, Puccini's opera La Boheme. And that's the reason why the big Act 1 showstopper is called La Vie Bohème. Uh, so, it's about a bunch of young artists living in New York City and uh, under the shadow of HIV and AIDS, living in extreme extreme poverty in the Bohemian Alphabet City of New York. So the play was originally workshopped in 1993, and then it was brought to Broadway in 1996. Uh, so Jonathan Larson, I know that's sort of like common lore that he died of AIDS. He did not... <laughs> Um, he just he had an aortic dissection. Um, they think that he might have had Marfan syndrome, but essentially he didn't die from AIDS. Um, he died the night before the off-Broadway premiere, which is unfortunate. But um, the show was a hit. It was a huge hit. Uh, it won to- it won a Tony Award for Best Musical. Um, a lot of people who were in it, including Idina Menzel, got big starts because of this musical. And this is what the first one of the first things that she was very well known for. She eventually went on. To do Wicked, which, uh, funny enough, Wicked was actually the show that knocked knocked uh, Rent out of the top ten longest running um, Broadway shows, and moved it from ten to eleven. Um, but yeah, it was it's one of the most successful Broadway shows ever done, and it's all about AIDS. So the larger metaphor of the show, it's just it's. It feels like it would be heavy-handed, but it's actually not. Is that the larger metaphor of the show is that you don't own your life, you just rent it, and you essentially can be evicted at any time. And that's the, the, um, the show kind of opens on that sentiment. Is that That's the first number, is rent. And that everybody who lives in this tent city is being kicked out. Um, the music is wonderful. And it is primarily about AIDS. There are several char- all, several characters who are HIV positive. For a there, show that is about is. such a dark topic, I'm going to say this and I'll let yes. you get back to it. The music, it has some of the most soaring, cathartic moments of any musical I've ever seen. I mean, yeah, there's Defying Gravity and Wicked. I, I, I can't knock that one out. But that, that kind of in-your-face, radical, I'm here, I'm not dead yet attitude that Rent has is really special, I think. A lot of people, especially a lot of queer people, rocking around with tattoos that say, no day but today, because this was such a cultural phenomenon. It still is. It actually got a revival twice. Once, or um, A revival in pop culture is when the film came out, which is when I was in high school, and I cannot overstate how big of a deal this film was, especially for theater kids. Uh, and then again with the, the recent Broadway revival. Yeah, if you're turned off by the phrase rock opera, pay attention to the first part of that rock because it is a rock. It's they're written like rock songs. Yeah, it's not opera so much as he took it from La Boheme, like the inspiration All of the, La Boheme. But uh, the phrase the phrase opera here means the entire thing is sung. It doesn't necessarily yeah. make a comment on the style of music. Yeah, this this is very much like kind of. Would you say pop rock? No, it's rock. It's like like Freddie Mercury could have written the yeah, show. That's what kind of rock music it is. That, In fact, I would say that I I would say that Queen was probably a, a bit of an inspiration to certain numbers in the show. Um. So that but okay. So the the other reasons why Rent is important. Many of the characters are either queer or they're people of color. 
So, um, and even um, the character Mark, the little he's played by Anthony Rapp. He's a cute little blonde guy with glasses. Um, Mark is Jewish. Uh, Roger is really the only boring white guy in the show. But um, he was a musician. He ended up getting hooked on heroin, and that's how he contracted HIV. There's Mimi, who is a Latino woman, who's also a sex worker, who's um, who contracted HIV from, from needles, the same as uh, Roger, that she was a drug user. Um, and then there's Collins, his black man, who's a professor. He's a, a, a gay black man. And then there's Angel. And, okay, I'm trying to recall, it's been a while since I've seen the actual musical, I'm trying to recall which pronouns they use for Angel exactly in the musical versus the film. They use she in the film you ask, they will say that the character is either trans or genderqueer, as the Wait, character does you're tend forgetting, to... um... Oh, I'm... I can't Her name. Who? Joanne. Oh, I'm, I'm getting there, Corey. Oh, well, I thought... You said, and then there's Angel. I thought you were done. I, okay, I'll be quiet. No, there's Angel. I'm getting there. Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm going through the characters who have AIDS first. Okay, okay, I'll back off. Um... And then, yeah, then Angel, um, Angel's the character who actually, who actually dies of AIDS during the course of the show. Um, and then there is, so, um, Mark, the little Jew, the Jewish boy I mentioned earlier, his ex-girlfriend Maureen is bisexual, and she is partnered with a black lesbian named Joanne, who was a very high-powered lawyer. So, um, the film doesn't touch on this so much, but the, the play also does sort of talk about classism a bit, through the characters who are slightly more affluent than the others. Mm-hmm. That there's say, say like there's the character um, he's played is he played by Tay Diggs? Remember? Collins, no, not Collins. Collins that, Jesse that, L. That, Martin. Yeah, Jesse L. Martin. Um, no, the guy who plays Benny. Benny. Benny used to be one. Of, yeah, Benny used to be one of the crew. He's a black man. He used to be one of the crew, but he married rich, and so now they all they all hate him because he lives in the Upper East Side. But so essentially, but like that's it. Like essentially, the show is a character study. Um, it doesn't really have that much of a forward plot. In fact, really, it's hard to nail down what the plot is. It's literally just about the lives of people with AIDS, and this is something that had never been done before. Especially never been done in number one a Broadway format, but number two in a joyous one, mm-hmm. celebrating these people. That, that's the the you know the the seasons of love. It's the song is uh, the the play is about celebrating the lives of these people instead of making making it about just their deaths, and that's the reason why Angel's death is such a big deal in the play, and that it's harped on so much. And that there's an there's a several musical numbers sung about it. Is that at the time that this would have been written, that when Jonathan Washington would have been would have been workshopping this and writing this, that people with AIDS were literally just that they were people with AIDS. They lost their identity, and it was already bad enough, especially if you were queer. It was already bad enough to just be labeled that. But then you're a queer person with AIDS. You're worse than garbage. Well, there's that line: um, "Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care?" Yes. Yes, and in the AIDS support group scene. Yes. That's another thing: is that it included a lot of things like that. They, like they open, they talk about AZT in the songs a little bit. They have the AIDS support group scene. Um. Like, there's just a lot of things, like, you just sort of take it for granted now because we're used to talking about these things in a modern context, but a lot of these things just were not shown. Or, unless you actually had AIDS, you never would have a reason to set foot in a place like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as blowing the door open for, I, I don't want to say normalizing, but, um... It's normalizing and humanizing people who humanizing. live with the virus. 
Yeah, humanizing AIDS and, you know, the people who suffer from it. I think rent's importance can't be overstated. Yes. Yes, and it truly is, like, one of... I mean, there's a good reason why it's one of the longest-running shows ever on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it's and the thing is, it's like, Rent is such a cultural phenomenon. Like, you even see jokes about it and stuff that you wouldn't expect to see jokes about it, although some of them are not necessarily in good taste. And actually, I do... I, I did, as I was looking into this, I realized that there were a lot of people who did brutally make fun of the play for being about people with AIDS. And it was actually a point of controversy, although honestly, if you know anything about theater, that this could only possibly help the ticket sales. Right. <laughs> about something slightly taboo. Oh, because this was at the time taboo. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, again, like you said, it, it humanized it, and it wasn't, I mean, there were sad moments to it, but overall, the show had this kind of defiant joy to it it was empathy yeah it was it was that it treated these characters with empathy that otherwise that they would be used as props in inspiration porn that was really like most of the media that dealt with aids at all was like that where they weren't really people they were literally just a prop to be used so the other real the other air quotes real characters can be sad that their friend died from aids yeah and And this was really the first one where they were the leads. Yes, they were the leads. Like, Rent is a show, and it's a, it's a show about a group of people. Most of them are people of color, and they all live in absolute poverty. It's a show about people who don't usually get shows written about them. Mm-hmm. And even with yes, Larson, you... a lot of it, he lost a lot of friends to AIDS. Yeah, that's like, when you read Testaments, especially, like, if we're talking about the AIDS cult, there are people talking about how they, like, every person in the community, like, you would start to schedule your life around funerals. Uh, Everybody, especially if you were really active in ballroom culture, if you were very active in the bathhouse culture on the West Coast, or in Los Angeles, that um, you knew, because they're, you know, it's like, because the way that people characterize it, like, oh, imagine if ten people you knew dropped dead in the two months, and so then the gay men who were part of this will say things like, uh, like, add a zero to that number. That all of a sudden, people all around you are dying. Because the communities were so insulated. And the reason why we did this was to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. So our communities were so insulated. It took us far too long to get help. And also, it helped spread the virus. Which, of course, like, that's not our fault. There's no possible way we could have known that this would have happened. But, like, there's all these little factors that contributed to making this the crisis that it was. Right. Uh, but, I mean, you I'm know... I'm telling it's... you about it so it doesn't happen again. Right, and, you know, that brings us up to the legacy. You know, we, yes. we've kind of talked already about what we lost. Um, I don't think you can say it enough. We lost an entire generation of gay men. Yeah. Yes, and queer individuals as well. Queer, yeah, queer. We lost an entire generation of queer individuals. Gay men were very hard hit. Yeah, it's what I was going to say. Like, yes, there there were people who weren't gay men who died of AIDS, but honestly, that was the community that it was by far the hardest hit. And that's the reason why a lot of... Like, if you've ever wondered why a lot of the language around um, queer rights does sort of revolve around the word gay, this is actually kind of a factor in it, is because they were they were having the highest rates of infection, and so that was where the conversation went, and it just sort of made its way into a movement. It's not necessarily that they're more important, it's just sort of this was... 
this is what happened. This is, you know, a consequence of this thing. Right. It's not a value judgment. This is just how, how our history has evolved. Well, and and also, um, the, the the scope of that. I mean, these were creators. They were these were you know artists and writers and photographers and you know the non creators, the accountants, the lawyers, the activists, the potential politicians, doctors, nurses. I'm, potential politicians love. is a big deal too because yeah. a lot a lot of a lot of young gay men who are breaking into politics. Um, a lot of them did die, and yes. we, which I, primarily when I say, like, it set the movement back, this is kind of what I was talking, what I'm primarily talking about, is that problem, that, um, that we lost our ability to have, have our own seat at the table, and it took because us many years died. to get that back. Yes, because we were dead. Um, you know, as far as you know, who was left, I mean, Elizabeth, you said many times to me, older lesbians are like elves. Oh, yes, they're... <laughs> yeah, that, the, um, I refer to them as Tolkien-esque elves because they have this sort of ethereal wisdom to them, and this is part of why, is that they were typically the people who were taking care of the AIDS victims, who were taking care of the men, the men who felt ill, who didn't have family to take care of them. They helped established the the AIDS quilt they worked in the organizations like Rachel Maddow like but this is you know this is sort of gives them this sort of appearance not necessarily in body type or, or beauty but just they they feel like almost like ancient wise creatures almost slightly mythological I just I love being around older lesbians well again it's you know you look at what they lived through exactly so I mean, there is this kind of weight, I think, to, you know, we're the only ones who remember them. Yes. We're the only ones. It's not like, oh, as a whole, like, as a whole, you and I can remember them, but, like, the individual names, their their favorite color, their favorite show, like, everything that makes you you that says, I was here. The big part of what the AIDS quilt was is a lot of these people did not necessarily were estranged from their families. It was about marking. It's the the we are here. Yes, it's remembering people who otherwise would be forgotten. We were here. I matter. I mattered. Yes. And you know, a lot of the older now lesbians who survived the AIDS epidemic, you know, especially the ones that worked so closely in it, they're the only ones who are carrying that torch of you mattered, you were here. Yes. So, I mean, as far as it comes to showing respect, you had better damn well be showing respect for, (laughs) you know, older lesbians in our community. Go to your local community centers, your your queer community centers, and, like, participate in their events and go buy books from their bookshop. They really do good work. And I feel like the, the service that they provide has sort of has sort of changed over the years, especially with, with how much we use the Internet now to communicate. Because it used to be a part of it was a socialization thing as well. Even Corey and I remember this from when we were younger. Yeah, support your local, your local community centers because they were instrumental in keeping people alive. And it's a good cause. And this is how you can learn more about your own history. Because this is how, you know, how Corey and I learned a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, I know we're in the digital age and it's super easy to go look this stuff up online. 
but you miss the personal aspect of it because you're just reading facts. You're not yes. talking to somebody who saw, you know, 50 to 100 of her friends die within a decade. You're not talking to somebody who remembers their names and what their favorite song was and what they did and that they that they were here. Yes. There's something that I think that something that I like about queer political movements now is that we tend to maintain a lot of the individualism. And I think that it's that this is the format that we're following, which is mm-hmm. nice. But like you guys like we need to know but we also need to know our history. Like you need to know why queer people are are queer culture now is the way it is. You need to be informed. Absolutely. Especially as since we may, you know, depending on how the political climate goes, especially in the U.S., like, you guys need to know this just in case, you know, we might have to start defending it. (laughs) Like, I'm trying not to get all gloom and doom, but, like, guys, learn your history. You need to be informed. Learn your history because right now, um you should probably be able to stand up for yourself. <laughs> I don't know yes. how else to say this without getting too political. Um, but also all- the problem, the problem is, is often, and like, I remember going through this when I was in school and like most people experience this is the problem that is that we don't cover this in school yet. Yet. Number one, because it was still very recent, even at the time that I was in high school in like the early aughts. But um, it's also that uh, often your school education will not have the time to cover this topic because they have to cover everything that happened before it and so modern history often gets the slip and this is one of the things that just does not get covered so it really is kind of on you to learn about it because it's modern enough that nobody is going to spoon feed it to you like even like if you're still in university go take a class specifically about this i guarantee you if you go to a large university there will be one or there will be a queer history class and that will cover this material or even modern u.s history would work but you know educate yourself yeah i mean there are books um, we'll have a couple of books uh, in the article that you can reference as well. Um, again, you know, knowing the facts are great, but if you're near, if you live in an area that you can get to an LGBT center, try to go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is no better way yes. to learn your history than to be around people who've lived it. And also, like, it's not all doom and gloom. They're fun places. Like, they have bake sales. They have, like, dances. Like, if you're, uh, the dances are sort of for younger people, like, 20 and under. But if you are younger, like, just go. It's fun. It's a great way to meet queer people in, like, meet space. They'll normally have events all throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah, I used to go when I was in high school and early college. Like, it's fun. It's a great way to meet other queer people like you in your area. So we don't have that, that problem that queer women have where we meet people who live on the other side of the planet and date them. Yes. Um, <laughs> good way to uh, meet people in your community and save yourself uh, a lot of money on plane tickets. Um, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to end this on a light happy note. Yeah. So I mean, as far as like honoring that <laughs> legacy, honoring their memory, go to your LGBT centers. You know, if you're in a position to where you can be creative and make media, you know, consider maybe this is something I want to do a piece on. Yes. Or you know, even just to be mindful of it. To be mindful Draw of it. Draw inspiration from it. You know, if if you know that there's media being made that touches on this, then, you know, try to watch it and support it if you can. You know, we talked about the, um, the over the summer on ABC, the When We Rise documentary. 
What was mm-hmm. a documentary? Is a web series. Um, you know, as far as ball culture goes, Ryan Murphy from Glee. I know this is going to get divisive opinions. I just, I just felt that like derisive sound rise in my throat, but I had to suppress it. <laughs> um, Ryan Murphy is co-creating a show called Pose, and it features five transgender actors in cool. series regular roles. I mean, that is a record. Cool. You know, if if this actually makes it and is picked up, support the hell out of this show because that is unheard of. And it's also about New York in the 1980s. And it also talks about, you know, the rise of Trump culture and ball culture. And they did it the right way. Everything they've said so far, they brought on ball culture consultants like Michael Robertson, um, Twiggy, to help with developing that series. Um, They have Janet Mock helping to write. I mean, you know, as far as um, Hector Extravaganza, Skylar King, Saul Williams, people who actually participated in ball culture in the 1980s are serving as consultants. Um, Trans activist director Silas Howard Will Will is co-executive producing. When we get shows like this that go out of their way to get so much right, we have to support them. And this show is bending over backwards so far to try, it looks like, to try and get it right. Oh, there's, there's a lot of good names on the list. I'm, I'm scanning the product, I'm scanning the production credits. There are a lot of important people involved in this. This is well, definitely in, in worth keeping an eye on. Well, it was also announced, um, Tatiana Maslany was cast for a role in this too. So, I mean. That's it. Ladies... I'm watching it. I'm watching it. I'm watching it. <laughs> My butt is. That's all you had to say. My butt is in the seat. Well, I'm watching it. I, I, they had me already, but <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, James Vanderbeek is also going to be in this, so that'll be. Oh my god! God, can you? God, the show could not have been made even like five years ago. That's incredible. I don't know that it could have been made even two years ago. But this yeah, is like when you talk like... about like allyship. This is Ryan Murphy, and he's still a gay man. He knows. He has. He lived through. He also has a lot to make up for. He has a lot to make up for. Yeah, but I'm saying, you know, he lived through this. (laughs) Yes, he he did. did And And he's learned, it seems, and he's giving his platform to people who otherwise wouldn't have a platform to tell their stories. It's also possible that he always wanted to do this and never could. But yes, yeah, please support the show. Like, if 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 it it gets picked up. It's being shopped right now? Um, no, ABC is producing. It's basically, we're going to wait to see if they pick up the pilot. Okay. So if it gets picked up to series, like, you have to fucking watch this show. I'm sorry. You have to fucking watch it. (laughs) I I will bleat on this. If it gets picked up to series, from the moment I find out it's picked up to series until it premieres, every episode of Ladies First, I'm going to drop a, you have to fucking watch Pose. (laughs) I was going to say, and then if it does get picked up and, and premieres, we're going to have to watch it and review it. Well, yes. We'll probably and talk have about to it. live vlog it. <laughs> yeah, and talk about it on Ladies First. Yes. Future episode! Um, Yay! So, yeah, we we did try to end on a positive note. Obviously, this this is not fun 
subject matter to discuss, but we do appreciate you guys um, tuning in and writing that out with us. Um, we are going to have links at the bottom of the article, um, both for the documentaries and for some more history. Um, also, don't forget to check out our other podcasts. Um, we've got quite a few people doing some fun work on there. We've got, um, I think they call it under, below the screen of the Ultra Critics. <laughs> it, it's a movie podcast. Jeremiah and Thad do it. Um, we've got the Fundamentalist with Kylie, Gretchen, and Julia. Um, I think the one OG of their most great. recent episodes was about pumpkin spice, so... That's always going to be fun. And then we've also got Unabashed Book Snobbery, and that's Kylie and Julia generally talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. (laughs) Talking much shit about Game of Thrones. Yes. Um, So, yeah, support our other podcasts. You know, comment. Uh, We love hearing your comments. Um, You know, like, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, if you read yeah. the books in the bottom of our in the bottom of this article, please comment about it and talk to me about them because it is like pulling teeth sometimes to get people to read these books. But I love them so. <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, we just wanted to say because we're actually also on a year of existing. Thank you guys yes. for supporting us. Um, you know, really, has it been a year? Yes, it's been a year. Oh my god! Well, happy birthday to us. Yeah, so, you know, over this last year, thanks for your support. Thanks for tuning in as we fine-tuned this program. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your patience. Yes, found our groove. Um, And also, thanks for tuning in on this episode, because you knew what was coming in advance, and you did it anyway. So, we appreciate it. And we will be back next time with something that is much more lighthearted. Yes, we promise we'll do the happy, sappy one next time. Yes. We don't know what we'll pick yet, but we promise it will be happy. (laughs) Tell us in the comments. Yes. Okay, that's all the time we have. I'm Corey. Thanks to Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yes, that's Elizabeth. And we're going to let you go. Have a good evening, y'all. Bye-bye.